Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Awesome. Well, it's exciting for me to be here this morning to share with you the Word of God. Are you excited about Christmas? I'm excited. I tell you what, I'm excited about, um, I love to tell the story. I love the story of Christmas. And I pray that today uh, it's going to be a blessing to you as we talk about uh, this portion of the Christmas story. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at Uh, what we've called glimmers of grace. We've been reviewing obscure clues about the coming of a Savior that are hidden throughout the Scriptures. And each one of them will provide a little bit more light about who this Savior will be, what he'll be like, when he will come, where he will come from. We were really tempted to call this Christmas cookie crumbs. But we got outvoted. Remember Hansel and Gretel? Remember the story of Hansel and Gretel as they spread breadcrumbs on the forest floor in order to find their way home? Well, in the same way, God has spread out these clues throughout the Scripture that lead us to Jesus Christ, that lead us to the stable in Bethlehem, that lead us eventually to the cross. We started with Genesis 3.15, and in Genesis 3.15, we found out that salvation comes through a human child. Now, this seems obvious, but it's not obvious. God could have showed up in the clouds and proclaimed salvation. He could have sent an angel or some other heavenly being to bring about salvation. But God, in his wisdom, decided that it would be through humanity that salvation would come to humanity. Amen? So that's the first clue. The second clue we found in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. And there the field narrows even more because we find out that a king will be born to the people of Israel. So instead of all of humanity, we now have one nation pinpointed where this king will come from, and there will be a star that will rise, that will announce his coming. Now we come to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and we get even more specific because now we find out not only that this king will be born in Israel, that it will be a human child, an Israelite, but not only that, he will come from a particular town in Israel, the town of Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. So that brings us to our passage today, and I hope that you can see that little by little we are getting more and more focus, more and more clarity on who this person is, where he will come from. Today we're going to look at three traits that we see in this passage, in these three verses, one in each verse, that give us some more understanding of who this Savior will be. The first trait that we look at is humility. 
humility. And humility is illustrated in an obscure little town, the town the town of Bethlehem. Look at what it says. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler in Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. Bethlehem. It's a little town about six miles to the south of Jerusalem. It's been inhabited for thousands of years. And the, the name comes from the fact that there are several beautiful, fertile little valleys that are found in Bethlehem that are perfect for growing grain, barley and wheat crops. And so we get the name Bethlehem from that. It was the breadbasket of this area. And uh, Beth means house. And Lachem means bread, and so you get Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. And that's what this, uh, this town was known for. It was known for providing bread for those in, 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 in among the Israelites. But it became more well-known for its favorite son, a young man who would be born in Bethlehem named David, who would event, eventually become king. David was the son of a man named Jesse. And Jesse was the son of a guy named Obed. What a name. Obed. And Obed was the son of a man named Boaz who married a Moabite woman named Ruth. And so the story of David begins in the little four-chapter story of the book of Ruth. And David eventually will come from the town of Bethlehem. Micah, the writer of this prophecy, is writing during the time of Isaiah. It's about a hundred years before the destruction of Jerusalem under the Babylonians, and about 12 kings after David. So we're 12 generations beyond David, and the question that we have today is why Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem? Why not Jerusalem? Jerusalem was known as the city of David. Why didn't God decide to have the baby born in Jerusalem, the city of David? After all, that's where the palace was. That was the baby factory for all of the Israelite kings. All of the kings of David came from, Bethlehem, from, from, this, from the city of Jerusalem, from that palace. Why? Why didn't God send this baby to be born in Jerusalem. That was the most logical place. But no, it was Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Well, I think Bethlehem was decided because Bethlehem brings us back to David, the David of Bethlehem. That David who was a humble young man who trusted God that David who sat out with the sheep in the pasture, plucking on his lyre, singing psalms and praises to God. God wants us to remember that David, not the David of Jerusalem, who was up on the rooftop of his palace in a place he shouldn't have been, 
looking at things he shouldn't have looked at, right, when he got in trouble with Bathsheba. God doesn't want us to remember that David. He wants us to remember the David of Bethlehem, that young, innocent, powerful young man who came from obscurity, who shocked the world through his mighty acts, who was anointed by God to be the king. You see, Micah's prophecy stands as a monument for us, waiting for this coming ruler, marking his place of birth. It's much like this monument that we find in Iowa. You see, there is a monument in Iowa, in Riverside, Iowa, the future birthplace of Captain James T. Kirk, March 22nd, 2228. You can go... Look Look, at all, look on Google Maps. It pops up. The future birthplace of Captain James T. Kirk. Okay? In the same way, this prophecy was like this monument waiting for the future coming of this great leader. You can take Captain Kirk off the screen. Beam him up. <laughs> so, you get the idea. Now, the question is, why is this important? This is all very interesting, but why is it significant to us? What does it mean for us? You see, God's answer, his salvation, doesn't always look like what we expect. Isn't that true? God's answer doesn't always look like the answer that we expected. You see, when we look for an answer from God, we tend to look for a Jerusalem-like answer. We look for the palace in Jerusalem, the logical solution, right? God, this is the way things should work. You should bring me this answer in this way because this is what makes sense to me. Babies of kings are born in palatal city. This is the way it should function. God, this is the way that you should do this for me. And God says, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to do it in a less obvious way. I'm going to do it in a Bethlehem way. And this is what God does many, many times in our lives. He's done it many times in my life. One of those times was when Leda and I first decided that we were going to become missionaries, and we needed to raise funds to do that. So well, how do you raise funds? Well, you go to all the people that you know and have known you all your life, and you ask them for money. That's kind of what you do, right? And so that's what I did. I, was in, I, was, I grew up in New Jersey, and I had all these people that I knew, and I had a lot of friends, friends of my, my parents, friends that had, had known me growing up in the church, and, and they had bucks, man. And I thought, these people are going to support me. These were my palace in Jerusalem kind of people. They didn't give me nothing, man. Nothing. It was like, are you serious? They didn't give me anything. I couldn't believe it. And then there was this couple, this family that lived way out in the country in New Jersey, this little country church. Yes, there is country in New Jersey. <laughs> and they lived out in the country, and they had, um, they barely knew me. They were part of my, my parents' church, and and they supported Leda and I for years as the highest individual supporters that we had on our team. They were our Bethlehem. Jerusalem didn't work out. 
It all came from Bethlehem. You see, God has a way of doing this in our lives, and we have to trust in Him because He does it to demonstrate His power. Amen? He does it to show us that it's not about how we can design a strategy to get what we want and get what we need, but it's about how He miraculously provides. And that's exactly what happened in our lives. The passage goes on to say, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. What an interesting statement. His origins are from, but aren't we talking about somebody who's going to be born in the future, something new, something fresh, but yet it's something old? Well, well, what is it? Is it new or is it old? And the answer is yes. You see, God, when he does things, he does it both new and old. God does new and fresh things, but they're always tied to the old promises and prophecies of his word. You see, and this Savior would be connected with the history of God's people. He would be connected with what was old, what was ancient of ancient times. It's interesting that the prophet Daniel later calls God the ancient of days. I love that title for God. He's the ancient of days. And here it says that this Savior will, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Because he is just like the ancient of days. What is this passage saying? It's saying that this baby is going to be born, but this baby is not just a brand new baby. This baby is also old. He comes from way back. Is it speaking of his of his pre-existence, the fact that he is God being born in human flesh. We've got these hints, these cookie crumbs that show up in this passage that are just really incredible. And God does this in our lives. He does new things, but it's always connected with his word. It's always connected with the time-honored principles of the truth of the gospel. He doesn't do anything that's out of line with what he's done in the past. Humility. Humility looks like an obscure little town. Let's go on to the next of these traits that we'll see of the Savior. The second one is patience. And patience looks like a mother with child. Look at verse 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. She who is in labor bears a son. There's nothing more anxious than waiting for the birth of a baby. Amen? Amen. We got a family over here waiting on a baby. Coming soon, right? When we talk about the birth of a baby, we talk, we talk in weeks. How many weeks are you? How many weeks you got left? Then we get toward the end. How many days left? How many days over, right? When is this going to be over? There's a sense of anticipation, right, that builds and builds, and we lose patience. But babies come when babies come. You see, God has a timetable for babies, and it's right about nine months, right? 
And we can't hurry that along. As a matter of fact, we don't want to hurry that along because God's busy working and building and developing that baby inside that mother's womb. You see, and this is what God is doing with the birth of the Messiah. God is in the process of building his plan, of developing this miraculous event that will take place. Did God really abandon Israel? The scripture says, therefore Israel will be abandoned. Well, we know from the greater testimony of scripture that God never leaves his people. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. God doesn't abandon his people, but God for the next 400 years is silent. And when God is silent, doesn't it feel like God has abandoned us? Has that happened in your life? When you're going through the deepest, darkest, most difficult time in your life, and you're praying to God and you're asking God, God, answer me. God, give me direction for my life. And nothing. He's silent. And we feel abandoned by God. Don't get discouraged. God has not abandoned you. Babies don't speak in the womb. Right? It's a time of silence. It's a time of waiting. It's a time of patience. And we have to wait for God's plan to develop. You see, God's plan is already conceived in your life. God's plan is already conceived in your life. The solution to your problem has already been conceived. It is under the watchful development of God's hand. His eye is upon it as it develops and will be revealed at just the right time. When Leda and I were directors of uh, the mission that we work for in Costa Rica, we, um, we had just become directors of the, of the organization, and uh, we lost a building. There was this big building, and, and this guy who was not the rightful owner took control of the building. It was like a squatter, and he took over control of the building. And all the people and the missionaries that have been involved in the ministry, they were like, you got to get this back for us. And so as we began to prepare to get the building back, we realized that there were some legal problems that had to be dealt with, things that had not been maintained, problems that existed under the surface. And so we hired a lawyer and we began to work and prepare in silence for a number of months. And the people in the community started getting angry with me. They, would, they were giving me dirty looks all the time. Why don't you do anything, you little gringo? They're looking at me, and they're angry with me. And I just said, be patient. Be patient. Because I couldn't tell them what we were doing. We needed the element of surprise. We were going to get the building back. And when it was finally all fixed and all ready, we moved in, and we brought a locksmith, and we changed the locks on the building. We posted a guard, and we took over the building, and that building is still in use for ministry today. We got rid of the problem, but it took time. And the people came to me later, and they said, oh, we're sorry. Thank you. Don't we do the same thing to God? 
God is at work. He's doing things that he can't even explain to us. We wouldn't even understand them. But he's doing things behind the scenes, and it's all in silence. And we have to wait patiently for all of that to be concluded. Because at the proper time, God will move, and he will bring his salvation. He will bring the solution into our lives. And when he does, we will rejoice, and we'll say, oh, God, I'm sorry I wasn't patient. So why don't we just be patient from the beginning? Amen? See, we go back to the story of David, and David had to be patient. It's interesting, when we first, uh, David was first anointed king, he was just a little, he was a young boy, and he was anointed to be king. And later he would kill Goliath, and then after that, there's like 15 years until David becomes the king of Israel. Fifteen years. And so for 15 years, he's hiding out in caves, running for his life because people want to kill him. Patience. David waited patiently for God's timing. And God eventually did the miracle. And David became the king of Israel. But in God's time, when everything was right, when the time was right, it was fulfilled, it was completed. God is at work in your life. I don't know what problem you're facing today, but wait patiently because God is at work. Even if it feels like he's silent, like he's abandoned you, wait patiently. God loves you. He has a plan. The baby will be born. So wait. All right. We talked about humility. We've talked about patience. The third of these traits that we see in this Savior is strength. And we find it in verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. Let's take a look at this. First statement says, he will stand and shepherd his flock. Look at the word shepherd. The word shepherd literally means, it's a verb, and it means to feed sheep, okay? So I took some time and I looked up this word to see where it was used in the Old Testament, and it's not used as frequently as you would think, especially in 1 Samuel, where the story of David appears. But it shows up four times in chapters 16 and 17, which is the time that we're talking about here, this early time of David. The first time is anointing. If you remember the story, Samuel the prophet of God receives a word from, the, from God, and God says to Samuel, it's time to pick a new king, and you're going to go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse, and you're going to choose one of his sons. And so Samuel goes, travels to Bethlehem, and he tells Jesse, bring your kids to the party, <clears throat> because we've got to figure out who the next king's going to be. The first son stands up, and the Bible says Samuel looks at him. He says, this guy's got king written all over him. And God says, nope, because you look at the outside 
I look at the inside, and this guy's not the one that I've chosen. Move along. So the second guy comes up, and it's no, 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 all the way through seven sons. So Samuel turns to Jesse, and he goes, got any more kids? And he goes, oh, yeah, I got the youngest. He's out feeding the sheep, this word. Well, go get him. I said all your sons. And so David comes in out of the field. He's all covered in who knows what kind of sheep dip and all that. And the Lord speaks within Samuel and says, this is the guy. This is the one. And so he grabs a horn full of oil, pours it over the head of David, and anoints him to be king. The next time this word shows up, David is in the presence of King Saul. They're on the battlefield with the Philistines. And um, David is trying to convince Saul to allow him to go into battle against the great champion of the Philistines. And he says to Saul, he says, look, when I was at home feeding my father's sheep, this word, A lion and a bear came along to steal little lambs from my flock. You know what I did? I killed them with my bare hands. David was, he was rough, man. He was tough. He was dedicated to those sheep. He cared for them. They were his responsibility. He was fearless. This is the kind of man he was. The next time we see this word appear, David is down at this little stream, this little brook in the valley of Elah, and he's choosing five smooth stones that he puts into his sheep-feeding bag. Same word. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? Why? What what, what point am I trying to make? This word for feeding sheep is intimately associated with early David. And Micah, in chapter 5, chooses this word to talk about the Messiah. You see, he's connecting up the nature and character of young David with what this Messiah is going to be like. He's going to be strong and brave. He's going to be powerful. He's going to be innocent. It says that he will stand and shepherd his flock. The Messiah, the Savior, will stand and shepherd his flock. Well, David took a stand, didn't he? Didn't he? Who did he stand up against? He stood up against Goliath, the giant. There was a giant. He was huge. And David is a young, inexperienced shepherd boy. And he goes out and he takes a stand, not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. And he fights against Goliath and he defeats him. The Messiah will take a stand, just like the young shepherd of old, in the strength of the Lord. And he will take on the giant enemy. Now, the Jews got it wrong. The Jews thought that their giant enemy was Rome. And they thought that the Messiah would take on Rome. 
but Jesus took on the greatest giant for all humanity of all time, and that was sin and death. And he took them on on the cross, didn't he? And Jesus defeats the giant that opposes, that opposes mankind. All the way back to Genesis 3, when sin and death entered the world, the prophecies started, the breadcrumbs, the, the, the cookie crumbs started falling about what would, this would be like, and Jesus will eventually be the one to take him on, to take on the giant and defeat him. What is your Goliath? What is your giant enemy this Christmas that seems just too big to defeat? Take your stand. Take your stand. You see, we're Christians because we're like Christ. And Jesus stood against the giant just like David stood against the giant. And we are called to stand against the giant without fear because we know that God is with us. It's not our strength. It's the strength of the Lord, and it's the majesty of His name. We are not trusting in ourselves. This is not about arrogance. This is about trusting in God and His power in our lives. You see, God has not abandoned you. He's not abandoned you. His solution is in the works. Just think of Mary. Just think of Mary, pregnant, great with child, walking to Bethlehem. And as she's giving birth, in labor, giving birth to this baby, angels appear to shepherds who come to greet the child. These three images of a woman in labor, of the town of Bethlehem, of the shepherds all come together in the birth of Christ, fulfilling this message from Micah given centuries before. This is what Christmas is about. This is why we can trust in God, why we can trust in His Word, even when things are silent, even when things are difficult. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, for all that it means to us, for the way that it transforms us. We thank you, Lord God, that you stood against the giant of sin and death for us by coming into this world humbly in a little town like Bethlehem. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.